Salve and salutations. My name is Charles Chestnut. This is Storied History, and these stories are about Halloween. Sort of. Not really. This is more just like a trick-or-treat bag. I'm going to go through a lot of the Halloween traditions and try to explain them so it's not really one story. It's more just, well, like a trick-or-treat bag. It's a collection, if you will. So right off the bat, Halloween has its origins in a Celtic festival called Samhain. It's not called Samhain, although it is spelled that way. It's pronounced, pronounced Samhain. It is a pagan religious rite of the Celts. Originally intended to celebrate the end of the harvest and kind of mark the beginning of really the long winters that would come to the Northern Europeans. Basically to understand why these occur at this time, you have to remember that when these holidays were first created, they were basically in a world that was primarily agricultural. This is before the Industrial Revolution and before most people were living in cities, and so the end of the harvest meant the world was dying, winter was coming, the work was done, the food had been gathered, hopefully, and there was there would be enough to last through the winter again, hopefully. And as things move toward the end of their life cycle, that is when the celebrations became of a somewhat more macabre nature. And that's where the colors of Halloween comes from. Orange and black uh, basically is the colors of harvest, of autumn. Orange for the trees and the pumpkins uh, in America. And the black for the longer nights that are now coming. Now, pumpkins were not actually the first jack-o'-lanterns. Maybe. This story, this portion of it, is possibly more of a trick than a treat. In other words, it, this one may be one of those things that's kind of apocryphal, where people have made up the story later because it fits the narrative of these traditions being very, very old. So take it with a grain of salt, but basically jack-o'-lanterns, the theory, the idea, the story, uh, is that uh, the jack first jack-o'-lanterns were made out of a turnip. So the jack, kind of a trickster, he engaged in some skulldudgery, some trickery, some mischief in his life, and at one point he actually trapped the devil and then made a deal with him that he would never be uh, required to go to hell after he died. The devil agreed. Years later, Jack passes away, and he is not let into hell, but he tries to get into heaven, and they won't let him in either, because you can apparently trick your way out of hell, but you cannot trick your way into heaven. So he was forced to wander the earth, and he was given a lump of coal ever-burning that he placed in a carved-out turnip to light his way. Eventually, the locals in Scotland and Ireland uh, begin carving scary faces in their own turnips, and these are a way to frighten away the evil spirits that would come out on this particular night. Now, while these Celts are celebrating Samhain, the Catholic Church was expanding across Europe, and as they did so, they began to appropriate some of the local customs, local traditions, local holidays, pagan customs, traditions, and holidays into their own celebrations. And Halloween is no exception. It was the year 732, so 1,500 years ago, that Pope Gregory III dedicated November 1st as All Saints Day. To use the old language that they use, it was All Hallows Day. So the night before All Hallows Day became All Hallows Eve, or Halloween. Now, I am not going to go into the... Middle Ages and how they celebrated 
this particular holiday because it really does no effect and no bearing and no relation to what we do today. What we do today to celebrate Halloween, to mark Halloween, is pretty much an entirely American invention. And not even one that's all that old. It really is about 100 years, maybe 120, 130 at the most. And we don't actually know what the origins of some of these customs are. So the most famous, of course, is trick-or-treating. And there really is no one explanation for where this came from. There are three. And there's some evidence for all of them. But there's also evidence that some of these are just simply made up. So here, here you go. Here are the three. You go ahead and pick which one you want. Feel free to do so because there's just as much evidence for and against all three of them. The first one is that the Celts would sometimes leave food out to appease the spirits that were out traveling the earth at night. Uh, and then later people would dress up to pretend that they were spirits so that the spirits wouldn't bother them. And then they would take advantage of, the, of this to get the candy. This really doesn't have any evidence for it whatsoever except for some uh, rather dubious scholars claiming that this is the origins of trick-or-treating. I wouldn't, I don't put much stock in it. The second theory uh, is, uh, is a lot more solid and it speculates that the taking of candy stems from a Scottish practice called souling. Basically the kids and the poor uh, adults would collect money and food from local homes in return for prayers and praying for the dead on All Saints Day. The third theory basically postulates that it is actually a German uh, tradition called bell snickering that was mainly practiced at Christmas where the kids would actually dress up in costumes and call upon their neighbors. And if their neighbors could guess who the kids were, they were rewarded with food and treats if they couldn't be identified. Really, it's... It's probably a mixture of all of them, except the first one. That's just too hallmark, so to speak. What we do know for sure is that kids on Halloween 110, 120, 130, 140 years ago were little hellions. So the trick in Trick or Treat was actually a very real thing where they would... Uh, steal things that were not, not nailed down. In fact, there is a very long tradition of creating a bonfire out of stolen wood. So you'd go and knock part slats off your neighbor's fences and the big bonfire in town was supposed to be just made out of stolen wood, which you can see why people were not happy about this. So the first actual organized celebration for children on Halloween actually occurred in 1912 and it was intended to distract them from all of the chaos and the mischief making uh, that had grown into theft and well arson and they did adopt some of the Scottish traditions of stealing cabbages merging with the more English tradition of Guy Fawkes night the bonfire night uh, and there you go that it became a little bit out of control and so they tried to distract them with these more organized Halloween parties, and they were successful. Now, at some point after 1912, that's when trick-or-treating actually became a thing, a lot of the motifs that we see and we appreciate today actually came uh, and did have their origins back in that time. They had Halloween cards 
similar to Christmas cards, so you can actually look and see where some of the designs came from. The motif, the image of the witch on the broomstick is very, very old. Uh, that, that one is actually legitimately hundreds and hundreds of years old. But the pumpkins as jack-o'-lanterns, they begin to emerge at that point. And along with the uh, ghosts and the goblins and the ghouls and the dancing happy skeletons, although that may have been taken uh, or at least influenced by the Day of the Dead, uh, in Mexico, well, but I'll cover that in a second. Back to the witches, the idea that a cat was a associated with the witches dates back to the Middle Ages where cats were thought to be a witch's familiar, kind of a uh, an animal companion, a spirit companion that would enable them and help them to do their magic and to communicate with dark forces. It's a bit unfair, I feel, because if you're an old woman living alone, why not have a cat? I mean, the cats are going to help keep the mice down because you're living in an agricultural location and you're going to have mice and a cat is going to help. And it also is going to provide you company in the long winter nights. So if you're an old wo woman living alone, why wouldn't you have a cat? I mean, let, let them have their cats. What's wrong with you? Stop accusing them of being witches just because the old woman has two or three cats. Leave them alone. Bobbing for apples is a little bit newer um, the process of bobbing for something, it's basically you, you put your hands behind your head, stick your head, face in a vat of water and try to get a treat or a vegetable or a fruit with your teeth. It's a lot harder than it sounds or it can be because as you kind of bite into it, they just kind of squishes them down, pushes it into the water. Bobbing for apples, which is now kind of a quintessential 1950s Halloween motif, uh, that is not all that new because apples were not really considered to be a delicious fruit until later. The original apple crops back in the 1900s in America were made for cider. They were not sweet fruits. They were not all that pleasant to eat until the farmers and some of the food scientists began to crossbreed them to make them more delicious. There is one kind of superstition involving uh, if you bob for apples and you skin the apple in one long piece and then you throw it over your shoulder, it will spell out the name of the person you're supposed to, to marry. No idea how that one got started. I, you can just imagine if you just even try it once, it's very clearly not going to be recognizable as letters. It's just going to be a pile of apple peelings. I, I, you know, not everything makes sense. I'll tell you what are delicious are candy apples, and that is another American tradition. And for the foodies, we should say that there are candy apples and there are caramel apples. They are completely different. Toffee apples or caramel apples are basically dipped in toffee or caramel, which is just kind of a sticky form of sugar. You take nuts or sprinkles or any other type of treat, you can stick that on to the sticky substance, and there you go. There's your treat. A candy apple is a little bit different. Candy apples have a hard coating around the apple. This is basically invented almost by accident. A man named William Kolb in 1908 was a candy maker. He was trying to come up with a new Christmas candy. And he came up with this new red cinnamon mixture that would dry very, very hard. And he was just trying it on various things. And he tried it on apples because, well, apples were red. And at that time, they needed sweetening up in order to be really palatable. And people went nuts for them. 
It, he sold the first batch at apparently five cents a piece. And then every year thereafter began selling thousands and thousands. They very quickly expanded, became a tradition, simply because people really liked them. One of the candies that I personally enjoy is candy corn. And I realize that there's a lot of people that don't. And, uh, well, I don't care. I'm not asking you to eat that. Uh, <laughs> candy corn is actually from the 1880s, the Wonderly Candy Company in Philadelphia. They came up with a way to make this fake-looking corn. They literally claimed it was creamy and delicious and natural-looking as ripe corn. And no, none of those things are true. Uh, but advertising being advertising, uh, that's how they made it popular. I still like it. Halloween is now celebrated a little bit around the world, but not because of ties back to their own traditions. This is really just uh, adopting American cultural practices in areas like uh, China and Japan. They will have these little parties in Disney Tokyo, Disney Shanghai, Disney Beijing. They still celebrate Halloween. They put up uh, plastic jack-o'-lanterns. Uh, and those cultural practices are actually now bleeding into the countries themselves. And one of the things that I am absolutely not qualified to discuss, but I'm going to try it anyway, is Dea de los Muertos, the Day of the Dead. That is a Mexican holiday that has uh, started to kind of blend into the Halloween celebrations in America, primarily because of the large number of uh, Hispanic immigrants that are now residing here in the country. Day de los Muertos is not Halloween. It is not the same thing. Uh, they, there's a difference in the way that they approach spirits. The spirits in Day de los Muertos are not evil. They're not uh, out trying to cause mischief or harm. Uh, they are just the spirits of the ancestors who are, this is their day to be revered uh, and honored uh, rather than kind of the Halloween tradition of they're out here to try to cause you harm or mischief or, you know, destroy your livestock, that sort of thing. The Day de los Muertos is just a wonderful holiday. I grew up in the American Southwest in, in Texas, and there's a lot of blending of Mexican culture and Texas culture. Uh, including the food, by the way, Tex-Mex, if you've never had before, is absolutely should because it is phenomenal. Oddly enough, Dea de los Muertos is not a celebration of the dead as it is a celebration of life. It just, they're painting their faces to look like skulls, but they're celebrating the life of their ancestors, not kind of worshipping death. The best example in popular, modern popular culture of this is the movie Coco, which is absolutely Phenomenal! It is truly an amazingly, wonderfully well-done movie. And if you haven't seen it, then what are you even doing with your life? You should stop this podcast this minute and go watch the movie. I'll go ahead and wait. Are you back? Wasn't it incredible? Did you cry at the end? I cried at the end. It was amazing. One of the primary celebrations for Day de los Muertos is an ofrenda. Uh, it is an altar, an offering wherein the pictures of the people that have passed on are placed along with uh, marigold petals. The petals symbolize a pathway between this world and the next. The idea being that the uh, spirits can then come back to the ofrenda and uh, celebrate with 
their family. So food and offerings are placed on them, alcohol, trinkets, that sort of thing. It's a wonderful tradition. It really is. People literally sit down and tell stories about the, the people that came before them. And they do it in a very respectful, kind, and, pol and polite, and sometimes funny manner. It's a, it's a great holiday. Unfortunately, it isn't really an ancient holiday. Dea de los Muertos is a little bit younger than modern Halloween. In its current form, it was popularized by uh, President of Mexico, Rosario Cardenas. Uh, he was the president in the 1930s, so not even 100 years ago. And there is no question he was absolutely was pushing this holiday as a way to kind of return to the roots of real Mexicanness. And this holiday was one of those, and it's uh, probably the longest lasting of his legacy. So does it have its roots in an ancient Aztec or Mayan festival? No, it really doesn't. Not in the same way. And, and the best evidence for that is that all the Mayan and Aztec celebrations, the festivals, they uniformly, ubiquitously involved human sacrifice. And the skulls in the Mayan and Aztec celebrations, festivals, and holidays did not have the same reverence and lighthearted uh, feeling attached to them as the de, de las Muertos. There are massive debates about these sorts of things that I am just really not qualified to cover. But basically... While there may have been harvest festivals around the same time, it really has no real connection to the way that it is celebrated now at all. What President Cardenas did was take the Catholic celebration for All Hallows Day, for Halloween, and remove all of the Catholic trappings of that day and kind of put them replace them with a romanticized ideal and idea of a celebration that really didn't exist. But it doesn't mean it's not a great holiday. It had certainly gave the world what is one of the best family Halloween movies, even though it's not really about Halloween, uh, ever made. Go see Coco. But only after you subscribe to Storied History, because my name is Charles Chestnut. This has been Storied History. If you hit the subscribe, I hope you enjoyed it. This one is, it really isn't a story. It's just kind of a trick-or-treat bag. But still, we did hope you have enjoyed it. We're also uploading a, um, a rendition of The Raven by Edgar Allan Poe. Just because I want to. The next episodes will be more historical and stories because I'm going to be covering Pancho Villa and the Mexican Revolution. And that's just fun, interesting, exciting territory. So hit the subscribe button, and I'll get the next story to you. Storied History is written and recorded by Charles Chestnut, with audio production and original music by Seamus O'Connor. If you've been enjoying them, subscribe, give us a rating, and we'll see you in the next one.